Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they'll lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything else. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when he will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. 
for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, so I'm going to begin with a bit of a spoiler alert, all right? I'm going to start off with a punchline. Stay awake! Right? Now, I just thought I'd get that out of the way right at the beginning, just in case anybody's thinking that this is going to be a bit of a time for dozing off. And if during the message, I, about halfway through, I start to see anybody starting to go for a bit of a snooze, yes, Roy, that means you, then I might just share the punchline again a few times during the sermon. Stay awake! Stay awake! Now, that's the punchline, but let's begin at the beginning. And the thing is, the beginning... The first two verses of chapter 13 are also the punchline for what we've been studying over the last seven weeks. They're also the punchline for chapters 11 and 12. But they also serve to introduce chapter 13, and so that creates a bit of a problem for us preachers. You see, there's so much going on in chapter 13 and there's so much intrigue over all of these political upheavals and geological and seismic upheavals and astronomical upheavals and there's even a little tantalising hint that maybe, maybe this might be telling us something about Jesus' return. There's so much going on here that we just want to sink our teeth right into chapter 13 before we've fully chewed over what these two verses mean for chapters 11 and 12. And if we don't recognise that these two verses are the key and the punchline for understanding chapters 11 and 12, we're going to miss some really important stuff. And it's critical that we don't miss it because what we learned in chapters 11 and 12 are actually what we need to apply to chapter 13. All right? So if we go to the trouble of studying chapter 13, but we don't know what we've learned in chapter 11 and 12, it's pointless. We might know a bit of stuff about what's going on, but we're not going to understand how we apply it. So let's have a little recap so that we can get the application right. Throughout chapters 11 and 12, Jesus hasn't said it overtly, but he's been quoting Old Testament scriptures that are making the point, and he gave the illustration of the fig tree. This is a big one. He gave the illustration of this fig tree when he killed it in chapter 11, not the favoured passage of Greenies. And, and the message has been that just like that fig tree, which was all lush and green, it looked fantastic but it had no fruit, temple worship had become all show and no fruit. Right? It gave every appearance of being productive, but there was no fruit of righteousness. They were all very religious, but they weren't living how God wanted them to live. And what God requires is this. We, Jesus told us this in chapter 12. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Right? In other words, love God with every fibre of your being and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Right? There's no other commandments greater than these. And it's, the, to do this is better than all of the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices that you could ever muster. But the thing is, the temple and the religious leaders... And many who worshipped at the temple had it the opposite way. They had all of the burnt offerings. They had all of the sacrifices happening. They had all of this great, glorious temple there. What they didn't have was a heart that was right with God. They didn't love God with every fibre of their being. And they didn't love others as they loved themselves. And when Jesus killed that fig tree... This was a living, breathing, and now dead metaphor for what God was about to do to the temple. Why was God going to destroy the temple? Because when God visited his temple, what he found was a den of robbers. 
And so he's made the judgment. The whole Jewish temple sacrificial system is coming to an end. Jesus didn't come just to reform it. He's come to destroy it. You know, some of our Bibles where Jesus chased the, the money changes and everything out of the temple, it puts the heading there, the cleansing of the temple. It wasn't the cleansing of the temple at all. He wasn't just going to tidy things up and spruce things up and dust us off and, and say, right, continue on. He's going to destroy it. Now, up until now, Jesus hasn't said that overtly. There's been little hints. But now, in chapter 13, he does say it. He comes straight out and says that the temple's going to be destroyed. Now, that's the punchline, and that's the key to understanding all of what's been happening in chapters 11 and 12. Right Now, we've got some visitors here, and if anybody's wanting to catch up on what he actually said in chapters 11 and 12, you can always go to the Bush Disciples website, www.bushdisciples.church, and um, we put all our messages there. And you can listen along with other people. There's people right across Australia listening to those messages now. But today we come to chapter 13, and the punchline is stay awake. Right? While we're waiting for the return of Jesus, is stay awake. And what we learned in chapters 11 and 12 will help us to understand what it means to stay awake. So it's all tied together. So we've finished the recap. Let's move on to this week. Jesus and his disciples have been going to and fro from the temple for a few days now. And this time they come out of the temple and one of his disciples, we're not told which one, says to Jesus, and this is the Michael Brumpton translation, look, teacher, wow, look at those stones. Wow, look at the construction. The temple, it was an amazing building. It was massive. Um, In the first century BC, it was one of the larger construction projects in the world. Right? It, it, it's, been, it's known as a renovation, but it was much more than a renovation. It was like a total rebuild by King Herod, probably as a memorial to himself. King Herod loved to build stuff, and he loved to build big stuff, stuff that would last and be a legacy for him. Its construction actually began somewhere around 20 BC, and it wasn't finished until the early 60s AD. Right, so it took about 80 years for it to be built, just in time for it to be destroyed a few years later. At the time of Jesus, it was still under construction. At, by this stage, it had, been get, it had over 50 years' work on it. So it was a pretty impressive sight in his day. But you can see on the picture there the size of the thing. So that's the, the small temple there, that's the original temple, the Temple of Solomon, compared to the temple that was built by Herod. It was massive. And it was something to behold. Josephus, you may have heard of a bloke by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian who lived at that time. And he describes it as being sheeted in gold, right? There are these big, heavy gold plates on the external walls. And he says that... When the sun was coming up early in the morning, if you looked into those sheets and caught the reflection of the sun, it was so dazzling, you, you couldn't even bear to look at it. You'd, you'd have to turn away from it. And he says that from the distance, anyone who saw it from the distance, it would sort of look like snow-capped mountains because the stones that weren't cheated in gold were so bright white. I, I like reading some of this stuff, um, some of the history there. And just see some of the innovation. Like he even tells us that along the top of the building, they had all of these little spikes to stop birds from perching on it. Now, he didn't tell us why, but of course we know. They didn't want the birds popping all over it. What an innovation. But the stones, wow, they were massive. Some of them were more than 100 tonne. And in fact, the largest stone was more than 13 and a half metres by 5 metres by 3.3 metres. 
And somebody must have done the estimations. I didn't work out the volume and see if this is right or not, but they worked it out and said it was over 500 tonne. Now, th these stones are massive. When you consider that the largest stones in the, in the Egyptian pyramids were 80 tonne, right? It was an engineering marvel. It's no wonder the disciples went, wow. It's the sort of thing I think that if I went there, I would have gone, wow, look at that. I mean, when they built the temple, they didn't just, yeah, how we get a building site, we, we knock the top off the hill and sort of level it out. They didn't do that. They built a stone platform on top of the hill on which to build the temple. That's what these massive stones are. And Jesus said to him, you see these mega stones? And that's the literal Greek, right? The Greek actually calls them megalas buildings. So you see these, these megalas buildings, it's just like we talk about a mega church. That was their mega church, right? Um, just means big. There will be left here not one stone upon another that won't be thrown down. That's, that's a pretty big call. Here it is, this massive temple, still being built. It wouldn't be finished for another 20-odd years. And Jesus is saying that there won't be one stone left on top of another. And just a few years after it was completed, that's exactly what happened. Now, we know that all the greatest efforts of man will be destroyed. Nothing will last. You know, I'm the sort of fellow that when I build something, I like to build it so I never have to rebuild it again, right? I want to build something and build it strong, build it so that it's not going to rust out, building so it's not going to crumble. But even I know that all of my best efforts are just going to go. But I don't think anybody other than Jesus could have possibly perceived that this mega building built of mega stones would become so completely and so utterly destroyed in just a few years later. It was the year 70 AD. The Jews had rebelled against Rome. And, of course, Rome wasn't going to take that lying down. They were the superpower. And Titus, a Roman general who later became an emperor himself, and you've probably heard of Emperor Titus. He's pretty well known. He's the one who built the Colosseum that's still standing today. But at this stage, Titus was a Roman general, and he's the one who besieged the city of Jerusalem until it fell. Um, now, by the way, I think I have to add an apology. I think... A few weeks ago, I'm not sure what week it was, but a few weeks ago, I think I might have mentioned that Antiochus Epiphanes did this. I was get, got things all mixed up. I'm getting my generals mixed up and the wars mixed up. Antiochus Epiphanes was actually a couple of hundred years earlier, and we're actually going to hear about him later on in the message. So sorry for the mistake, but it was Titus this time around. But these were terrible times. 97,000 Jews were taken captive and 1.1 million people died. These were dreadful times. And the temple was burned to the ground and it was disassembled. And I've spent a bit of time on this because we need to understand how significant this event was. For these people who Jesus were talking to, most of them, a lot of them, were still alive for that date. Anyway, opposite the temple at the Mount of Olives, four of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, John and Andrew, came to him privately and asked him to elaborate. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Now, these blokes, they probably were identifying this with the day of the Lord, right? So the Jewish expectation was that God was going to come in a day of judgment. They looked looking forward to this day of the Lord when the Lord would step in and make all things right. And they're probably thinking that nothing could, could level a building like that excepting something like the day of the Lord. And I think the answer that Jesus gave them was, was far more than what they bargained for. At this point is where chapter 13 starts to get a bit confusing. 
Is Jesus talking about the year 70 AD and the siege of Jerusalem? Or is he talking about something else? You see, Jesus' answer, it, it seems like a mixture of Old Testament prophecy, history, the near future, and the coming day of the Lord, which we don't know when it's going to be. And it's all intermingled together, giving a picture of political upheaval and geological seismic upheaval and giving us a picture of times of immense human torment and suffering. But the point is, and this is a very important point, and I'm going to keep coming back to the punchline, the end is not yet. This is not the sign. So stay awake for when Jesus does come. Now, I'm going to keep saying that punchline over and over and over again, not because I'm afraid that you're going to go to sleep, but because this is what Jesus is wanting us to know. Stay awake. So Jesus said that many people will come in his name. Great kid story, Andrew. Great kid story. Many would proclaim that they were the Christ. And during the years of the siege in Jerusalem, many did come claiming to be the Messiah. But they were false. And Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Did you see what Jesus is doing here? Uh, the, the disciples were asking for a sign. When's it going to happen? And what's the sign that it will that it's about to happen? But Jesus tells them what are not signs. Right? They're asking for signs, and Jesus says, These are not signs. And yet people still don't get it. These verses have become one of the favourite haunts of just about every religious crazy nutjob and wacko trying to piece together some kind of timeline of the events that Jesus is about to return. And I've heard so many people say, oh, you see all the wars that's in the world at the moment. And it seems on the news every couple of weeks we're hearing about another earthquake here, there and everywhere. Oh, and famines? Jesus must be about to come. Right? Now, you've heard that, haven't you? I know I have. And it's easy to get caught in that. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is coming. But when I get caught in that, right, it's like I miss the whole point. These things will happen. These things have happened. These things are always happening. There will be people claiming to be Jesus. There will be wars. There will be rumours of wars. There will be earthquakes and there will be famines. All these must take place. What's the message from that? But the end is not yet. You see, some people spend their every moment of devotion to God, their every moment of reading the scriptures, trying desperately to figure out when Jesus is coming back. And they feel that these are the signs that are going to tell them. But the whole point is, these are not the signs. They're not the signs. But they are the beginning of the birth pains. What a great analogy that one is. Now, at this point, I'm probably going to take my life into my own hands because... What woman wants to hear a middle-aged grandpa tell her about birth pains? Um, and birth pains are probably nothing compared to the pain that I'm going to feel when the mothers all have roast preacher for lunch. But it's a really good analogy. Now, I was a very good husband. Actually, I still am a very good husband. I remind Robin of that almost every day. Um, I'm still not sure she believes me. But I must have been a really good husband and a really good dad to be because I know what a Braxton Hicks contraction is. 
Put your hand up if you know what a Braxton Hicks contraction is. Don't be shy. Come on. Come on, you all you sensitive guys. You can put up. Oh, some of you do. Some of you don't. Some of you might find out in a few years. Braxton Hicks contractions. Who'd ever thought you'd hear that in a sermon? These are the little contractions that a pregnant woman experiences, sometimes accompanied by pain, and they're perfectly normal. Right? Don't be upset if they start occurring. Um, what they are is the, the muscles exercising in themselves. It actually takes specific muscles to deliver a baby. Now, the thing with the muscle, it's not much good until it's strong. And a muscle that doesn't get used much isn't strong, and so it needs to exercise. And this is an amazing thing about the way that God has designed the body of a woman, that when they get pregnant, the muscles start exercising themselves. They clench and release, building themselves up, getting themselves stronger, ready for the birth of the baby. It's sometimes called false labour, but it's not labour. They are, however, a preparation for labour, getting you ready, getting you stronger, ready for that day. They are a reminder also to be prepared for labour, but they're not labour. And even when it comes a little bit closer to the time for confinement, there may be a few false starts and you might think that, that labour is beginning. Who's the next cab off the rank? Is it Laura? Are you the next cab off the rank? Sorry if I'm embarrassing you here, Laura and Neil, but you know, there's going to be time when Laura says, Neil, it's time. Quick, get the car, get the bags, put them in the car. We've got to get to the hospital quick. Right? And there's going to be time where the, it's happening. It's happening, Neil. And they drive into the hospital and then it's time, it's time. And then everything just stops. It's like, oh, man. It's not time. But even as I get in the car and I start driving home, there's one thing that Neil and Laura know for sure. There's still a baby in there and it's got to get out sometime, right? So it's not going to be like, well, we, won't, we know not to worry about this next time. We're just going to give up. Yeah, it'll just... No, there's a baby coming and nothing's going to stop it. And just like that, there are going to be awful political and even geological events, cataclysmic world events... And at times like this, there's going to be a rush of people going around feeling, the end is nigh. Well, yes and no. Yes, the end is nigh. But it's not because we've just had an earthquake. Yes, the end is nigh. But it's not just because there's a multiple wars raging in the world at the moment. The end is nigh because there is one thing that we know for certain. Just like there's a baby in there and it's got to get out sometime, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And when God says to Jesus, it's time, Jesus, and he comes, there's not going to be any stopping him. There'll be no warning and he'll just appear. He'll be here. Up until then... Creation is going to continue with its Braxton Hicks contractions. It's going to continue to groan under the weight of sin. But on an unannounced day, Jesus is all of a sudden going to return. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. Not even the angels. Not even Jesus knew. Only the Father. Now, if you believe that you have better spiritual insight than the Son of God, then by all means, you feel free to go ahead and figure out when it is that Jesus is going to come and you'll be left looking like an idiot along with everybody else who's ever tried it throughout history. But for the rest of us who don't believe that we're smarter than Jesus, we're going to do what he told us to do. Stay awake. Was anyone dozing off? Stay awake. Righto. Why did Jesus intermingle discussion of his return with the historical event of the destruction of the temple? Well, I think there's two reasons for this. Firstly, they will both be times of judgment. And so in some aspects, both events 
will have a similar feel to them. But here's the second reason, and this is the most important one for us. If Israel had known that what day God was going to visit his temple, and if Israel knew what God required of them, don't you think they would have been ready for him? Oh, quick. Oh, God's coming tomorrow. Quick, everybody look busy, right? But what does God require? We learned it in chapter 12. Jesus told them what they were missing. What does God require? For us to love him with every part of our being, to know Jesus Christ as Lord, and to love our neighbour as ourselves. That's what Jesus was looking for when he went to the temple. But that's not at all what he found. Instead, he found a den of thieves. He found fruitless religion, all show, but none of the fruit of the Spirit, none of the fruit of righteousness. What do you think Jesus wants to find his disciples doing when he returns? He wants to find us being fruitful. You see, we don't get ready for Jesus by searching the pages of Scripture to try and work out what day he's going to come. We get ready for Jesus by loving God with every part of our being, by knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, and by loving our neighbour as ourselves. That's what it means to be fruitful. That's what he wants to find us doing when he returns. And that's how we stay awake. And unless we realise this connection between chapter 13 and chapters 11 and 12, we're going to miss that. We're going to be going, oh, staying awake, I just have to watch when Jesus comes. No, staying awake is being fruitful, as has been revealed in the previous two chapters. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. And don't you ever listen to someone who tells you they think they do know when Jesus is coming. But what we do know is that he wants to find his disciples being fruitful when he comes and not all caught up in showy religion. The only right way to consider the return of Christ is to view it as if it's imminent. There is no barrier to Jesus returning. I mean, Jesus could return before I finish this sermon. You know, don't laugh. It's not going to take a thousand years. But he might, he might come in the second hour of it or maybe the third hour. But he will come. Right, I've given you the punchline. Stay awake. But he also gives another instruction. Be on your guard. Now, why are we to be on our guard? It's because of persecution. He says, for they will deliver you over to councils. That's religious trials. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. That's religious persecution. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake. That's civil and political authorities to bear witness before them. Christians will be persecuted. I don't think there's ever been a time when the Christian church has not been persecuted. It started right from the beginning. The early church suffered horrendous persecution. We can read about it in the book of Acts. Most of the letters of the New Testament are written to prepare Christians for the suffering involved in persecution. There's not, I don't think of many letters where you don't find encouragement in that to persevere. And as a preacher of God's word today, I have a duty to tell you that the whole prosperity theology thing that is so popular in the church of today is a nonsense and a lie of, a de of the devil. That the kind of preaching that, that tells us that Christians should expect to have a wonderful, prosperous existence with no troubles and that we should expect to receive all kinds of worldly blessing and honour and respect and that we will become people of influence because people just love Christians so much, it's a lie. Times of non-persecution are an anomaly. In many places in the world today, Christians are being persecuted. And this is normal for the Christian church. 
Religious persecution is ripe. I've got a friend whose daughter is a missionary in a Muslim country. I'm not allowed to tell you what country she's in because if it gets discovered that she's preaching the gospel, she'll be surely be arrested and we don't know what will happen to her after that. Now, Muslims are the ones that we know mostly in Muslim countries. That's where we know a lot of persecution happens. But it's not just the Muslims. You know, in the New Age kind of spiritualism that's so popular in the West today, it almost idolises the whole Eastern religions, particularly things like Hinduism and Buddhism, and, and they're given the picture of all oh, these sorts of religions are all light and love and about spiritual enlightenment, and there's not much light and love in them. You go to a place like India, where Christians are being severely persecuted by the Hindus, especially anyone who was a Hindu and, and converts to being a disciple of Jesus, they're in trouble. I had a meeting a few weeks ago with a Myanmar pastor. It was actually organised by the Shire Council for this bloke to come out. He, he's looking at the possibility of facilitating Myanmar Christian refugees settling here in St George. And they asked if he could meet with, they asked all the pastors in town if he could meet with them. I think I was the only one who met with them. Now, Myanmar, you might know it as Burma, right? Why are they fleeing Myanmar? It's because Christians are being persecuted by Buddhist monks. Religious persecution against Christians, it often gets downplayed in the media. It doesn't get a lot of airplay. But it's real, it's common, and it's bitter. As is political persecution. On the Open Doors watch list, North Korea has once again been listed as the number one persecutor of Christians in the world. Why are they persecuted there? It's because the leader of that country demands the adoration of all of his subjects. And there's one group of people who will not give it to him because they adore Jesus more than him. And he can't handle that. So they're sent off to camps and whatnot and usually never heard from ever again. Jesus said, be on your guard. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. As Jesus' disciples, we should expect to be hated. And politically at the moment, we've got this whole discussion happening over religious freedoms there's a religious freedoms bill about to be released. And yet, it's good for us in Australia to have some religious freedoms, but don't be surprised when they disappear. You see, the world doesn't seem to mind Christians just as long as we keep our faith and as long as we keep Christianity a personal thing, as long as we keep it secret and don't start telling other people about it. But it's a very different story for those who don't keep it a secret. It's a very different story for those who are willing to publicly name sin and call the world to repentance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even the reason that we preach the gospel is because, sorry, even though the reason we preach the gospel is because we love our neighbour and we want them to be saved, those who don't keep their faith private are sometimes publicly smeared. They're targeted with social media campaigns. Some of them lose their businesses. Some of them lose their jobs. Be on your guard is what Jesus said, right? Don't ever get it into your head that being a disciple of Jesus is going to be easy. It never has been. It never will be. And don't let, let's not ever feel that being disciples of Jesus is something that's going to make us popular. If your version of Christianity is all very easy and leaves you feeling that, oh, I can be all very popular in the world and 
doesn't put you at odds with the world, then it might be time to ask some very serious questions about, am I missing something? Because Jesus said to his disciples, and you will be hated by how many? For my name's sake, how many? All. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But here's a thought. If preaching the gospel is what gets us persecuted, let's just stop. Never. Jesus said, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, some people will use that statement as a measure and a criteria for when Jesus can return, as if it has to be some kind of completed action. Oh, Jesus can't possibly come yet because the gospel isn't proclaimed to all nations. Now, if this was the case, why were the early church thinking that Jesus was going to appear at any moment? You see... I don't think that's at all what this is saying because the gospel is being proclaimed to all nations. It doesn't have to be the completed action. The gospel is being proclaimed to all nations. You see, it started out with just a Jewish thing. Jesus was a Jew. You know that, hey? How many of his 12 disciples were Jews? 12, right? So it started out as a Jewish thing. They were pre- and that's where they began. They began preaching in the synagogues. But then they were persecuted. They, they were rejected. We can't have you talking about this Jesus spoke in the, in the synagogues. So they chased them out. And eventually they were chased out of Jerusalem and they'd go into Judea. They chased out of Judea and they went to the Gentiles. The gospel was being preached to all nations. Even by the time of the fall of the temple, the gospel was being preached to all nations. You know, I've I've heard one preacher say, oh, Jesus can't come back yet because the Bible hasn't been finished being translated into all of the languages of the world. Um, I think that misses the whole point. The whole point is to stay awake. Jesus can return at any moment. Be ready. And what should we be doing in the meantime? Preaching the gospel to all nations. That's what has to be getting done before Jesus returns. It has to be what's getting done when Jesus returns. Preaching the gospel of Christ to all nations. The gospel is a powerful thing. What an amazing, powerful message the gospel is. And the gospel will even be preached by Christians when they're on trial. Isn't that cool? Even when a Christian gets put on trial for for being a Christian... They'll still preach the gospel right there. We, we saw examples of this in the book of Acts. At times the apostles were hauled before the authorities and they're put on trial. And as they're standing there in the dock, what did they do? They were witnesses for Jesus. They were telling them about Jesus and trying to convert them, the, the authorities, to faith in Jesus themselves. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, well, that's fine for them, but I'm not an apostle. You know, what's going to, what's, what about me? What's going to happen? Well, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to have the words because the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need to be a witness for Jesus. Now, I want to be really clear here about what Jesus is promising and about what Jesus is not promising when he talks about giving us the words to say. Jesus is not promising that he will give you the words so that when you're on trial, he'll give you the words for you to be acquitted. That's not what he's promising. I mean, do you even want to be acquitted? If you're put on trial for being a disciple of Jesus, if you're charged with being a disciple of Jesus, do you really want to be found not guilty of that? I hope not. Or if you were put on trial charged with the crime of preaching the gospel... Do you really want to be found not guilty of that? I hope not. 
See, Jesus isn't promising us that we'll be acquitted. His promise is that when we're on trial, he will give us the words to be witnesses for him, to be preaching the gospel, even when you're in the dock, even when you've got the prospect of prison or even execution ahead of you. He'll give you the words that you can continue preaching the gospel even at that point. So that you can be a witness for Jesus. That's a word that just keeps coming, being a witness, being a witness. By the way, do you know what the Greek word for witness is? Martyrion. From which we get our word martyr. Does that give you some kind of hint as to, to what it entails to be a witness for Jesus, right? A martyr is somebody who suffers for their faith, somebody who goes to prison for Jesus, someone who dies for Jesus. It's costly being a witness for Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus can put us at odds with the world. And I think we're going to see that increasing in our community. We're already seeing it increasing. We're sort of coming out of post-Christendom thing. It used to be the accepted thing and the Christian ways in our country was considered normal. Now it is no longer considered normal. Christian ideology is almost considered a blight by some and it's going to get harder and harder. It can put us at odds with the world. It can even put us at odds with our own family. Uh, when I asked Andrew to uh, do the kids' story, he said, oh, yeah, what's it on? I said, oh, well, it, it's, it's on um, the Bible passage we're reading is the bit about where parents will have their kids killed and kids will have their parents killed. If you can do that in that kid's story, that'll be great, thanks. And just left it at that. And he goes, oh, thanks. <laughs> but that's what's there. It says, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Wow. Some families are pretty toxic places, obviously. But when one member of a family becomes a Christian, sometimes that can completely divide a family. And hatred toward Jesus can be so great. Or perhaps the fear of recriminations that might come against the rest of the family is so great that that means if one of those members of the family become a disciple of Jesus, then the best thing for that family is going to be get rid of them. Let's hand them over to the authorities. That way we're all free. Or they just hate Jesus so much they want to get that person out of the family just so they can be a normal family again. We don't want to have this Jesus bloke all mixed up in our family. Jesus said, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. What's with this Jesus bloke? Did he have no idea of marketing? I mean, who does that? Who's, who starts up a thing where, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the world and I want all these people to follow me. By the way, if you follow me, you're going to be hated by everybody. By the way, if you follow me, you're going to be killed. You probably, even your own family might kill you. Did Jesus have no idea about marketing? You see, Jesus, he wasn't interested in marketing. Jesus was very good and is very good at saving. And Jesus is truth. Jesus will not tell us a lie. He won't spin us along. He won't tempt us along, never telling us the full truth. He is open right from the beginning. Now, the thing is, a lot of churches today are the exact opposite. A lot of churches today are really good at marketing. And we'll have marketing strategies. How can we get people interested in this? And this, how can we appeal to people? And how are we going to do this, that and the other? And the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the cost of the gospel comes second, third, fourth, fifth place or isn't existent at all. It's become all showy religion and no fruit. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what it means to be on guard. Guard your faith. Remain true to Christ. 
Don't be taken off track by false prophets and false messiahs and don't be discouraged by persecution. You know, some people, they sort, of, they sort of start off in faith and then things start getting really tough and they go, oh, I must have it wrong. This must be a door that God's shutting. No, it's probably not a door that God's shutting. It's just being persecuted is the normal way of discipleship. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a troubling picture, isn't it? But what we need to know is this is the life of being a disciple of Jesus. A lot of people read this and they go, oh, this is end time stuff. It's not end time stuff. This is ordinary, everyday life of discipleship. Let's move on. Verses 14 to 23 is where it gets really complex. Is Jesus talking about 70 AD and the siege of Jerusalem? Or is he talking about the great tribulation at end times? It could actually be both. Yes, the warning in these verses definitely apply to those who lived through the war in Judea when the armies of Titus advanced upon Jerusalem and they besieged Jerusalem. But we may also find that it applies at some level to the end times too. Now the thing is, we won't know until we're actually there and see it. Now, some people at this stage will go, oh, I know what it applies to. It definitely applies to this. Others will go, no, it definitely applies to this. Others will say, no, it definitely applies to all of it. Well, all of it can't apply to all of it, and I'll show you why. When Jesus said in there, he said that there's never been a tribulation like it and there never will be again. That means there's only one event he's talking about here. Right? Now, if we're talking about severity... It can only be that severe once. But it can still be like it without being quite as severe. It's just we need to know which was the most severe event, 70 AD or the Great Tribulation at the end. Now, I suspect it'll be the Great Tribulation at the end, but I do not know. And I just have to be honest with you, I don't know. Verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, on the 25th of December, no, it's not Christmas time, because it was 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king who had conquered Jerusalem ordered that an altar to Zeus be built on top of the altar of God. And then he ordered that a pig be sacrificed on that altar. And it became known as the abomination of desolation. Now, that happened a couple of hundred years before Jesus gave this warning. But it was well known, that horrible thing that had happened. And when, when Jesus heard, sorry, when the people heard Jesus speaking in code about this abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, the people probably went, aha, I think I know what Jesus is talking about. You see, what Jesus is saying is when you see something like this happening again, it's time to get out. When you see either a man or an object being set up above God in God's holy place and with the express purpose of desecrating that holy place and usurping the place of power of God, flee. Now, we don't know for sure when this ended up being or what it ended up, what, what it ended up being. 
You see, when it said, let the reader understand, now I don't know whether Jesus actually said that. I suspect that was actually written in by, by Mark as he was writing the gospel. And I assume those that Mark was writing the gospel to understood what he is alluding to. And if this relates also to end times, when we see a man or when we see an object being set up above God with the express purpose of blaspheming God, we will understand. And what are we to do? Flee. But the thing is, in 70 AD, uh, Jesus' advice was not taken. Jesus' advice was when all this starts happening, get out. And a lot of Christians took notice of that advice. In fact, most of the Christians had already fled Jerusalem, right? They'd already been persecuted out. They weren't welcome in Jerusalem anymore. They'd gone, but there were still Christians there. But those who weren't following Jesus did the exact opposite. And that is why the, the incident of the siege of Jerusalem was so tragic and why the death toll was so high. Apparently it was a time of religious festivals and so there was already, the city was already full. And then as the armies of Titus were approaching, the people in the surrounding countrysides thought the only safe place for us. They looked and saw Jerusalem with its mighty walls. They saw that mighty building in the temple and thought, well, God will protect us. And they fled into the city. Jesus told them that you're going to have to get out. But they didn't. They went in. And the city was bursting, out, bursting at the seams. Now, what a siege does is it cuts off all path in and out to the city. You can't get food, you can't get water, nothing can get in. And here we have Jerusalem already bursting at the seeds, seems hardly enough tucker to keep people alive. And they were starving to death, they were eating each other. It was awful. They thought they'd be safe from the Romans there, but they weren't. Jesus' advice was get out, flee to the mountains, don't even bother trying to get your possessions. You see, what Jesus was telling them is it's not going to be a time for standing up and fighting for a cause. And that's what they thought they were doing. They thought that, hey, this is the cause, this is the temple, this is God, this is our religion, we're going to fight here. But the whole point was there was no cause. God had already taken away and this was actually going to be the judgment of God to destroy the temple. Don't even bother going inside to get your stuff. Just run for it. The life of a refugee. We are so cut off from it here. We have no idea what the life of a refugee could be like. Fleeing from an approaching army, leaving everything that you have, leaving your home, leaving your tools, leaving, leaving your farm, leaving everything and running because there's an army coming to devour the whole land. We need to have compassion for refugees. If it happens in the wintertime, it's even worse. Not so much on a day like today. But you live where it's bitterly cold. Try running with nothing and being subject to the elements. And it's only because God is merciful and he cut the days short for the sake of the elect that anyone survived. And as we heard in the introduction, 1.1 million did not. Now, at this point, I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 18 and the judgment of God that's about to come upon Babylon and there is a voice that says, come out of her, my people. There's going to be time when God says that to us. Now, when the world, either locally or internationally, is thrown into chaos and upheaval and we're confronted with immense human torment and suffering, that's a time when people get 
are really vulnerable and easily deceived. Jesus said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and they're even going to perform signs and wonders. Now, when that happens, don't be led astray. And if everybody ever tells you, hey, Jesus has come, I know where he is. We've, just got, we've got to go up to this special spot and meet him there. That's where everybody who's his are going to be. Don't listen to them. You know not to be deceived. When Jesus returns, nobody is going to miss it. Nobody could possibly miss it. He tells us that it happens after the tribulation. It happens after the big trouble. It happens after the suffering. Now that will be completely contrary to what some of you have heard before and some of you believe. You know, there's a whole popular view in the Christian church in the West at the moment. It's coming out of, out of the southern parts of the United States. It's this whole idea that Jesus is somehow going to take out all the Christians before the big trouble, before the persecution. And it's been made really popular by the Left Behind series. You've probably heard of the Left Behind series, a series of novels, and I think they've even made movies about it. But it tells us that the Christians are going to be taken out of the world before the tribulation, before the big trouble. The problem is that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus has told us to be prepared for the suffering and it's after the suffering that he comes back. There's no way that we're going to miss it. That the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, and there's going to be all sorts of astronomical mayhem, that the heavens are going to shake. Now, I don't think this sort of stuff's going to go unnoticed. You'll notice it when, when the switch gets turned off on the sun, won't you? And I don't think we're going to need some kind of high-tech, super-duper radio telescope to tell us that the heavens are being shaken. We'll know it. He says... And then you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power. And then he will send the angels out and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. When, when is Jesus doing the gathering? Is it before the tribulation or after the tribulation? Jesus is doing the gathering after the tri tribulation. And this is what Christians have believed right through until about 100 years ago. And yet it's become such a popular teaching that Christians are no longer prepared for the tribulation. They're no longer prepared for these tough times because they've got it into the heads that we're, going to be, we're not going to have to be prepared. Jesus is going to take us out. Sorry. That's wishful thinking. That's not what the scriptures say. And we definitely don't need to worry that we're going to miss out. Jesus is going to do the bus run himself. He's going to stop off and pick you up himself, right? But what we do need to worry about is being ready. Stay awake. Don't let Jesus find us asleep. Stay awake. Remember what that means? We're right back to the punchline again. And this time we're for real. We're near the end. <laughs> to get ready for Jesus, we do this by loving God with every part of our being, by knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, and by loving our neighbour as ourselves. That's what it means to be fruitful. That's what he wants to find us doing when he returns. And that's how we stay awake. We don't know when Jesus is coming. But we do know what Jesus wants to find when he comes. He wants to find you being a fruitful disciple for him. He wants to see all of us bearing fruit and not just being caught up in showy religion. You know, there's... There's so much, I, I really had to cut this short. There's so much more here that I'd love to be able to share with you. But we just don't have time today. But Jesus topped it all off with a parable. He tells a story about a man who goes away, but he puts his servants in charge, each of them with their work to do, and he expects...
to see them doing it when he gets back. How about we be those servants? How about we be the ones who are busy doing the work that God has left for us to do? Being fruitful disciples, as the, the fruitful disciples that Jesus has saved us to be, and preaching the gospel like he's, he wants it preached to the nations before he returns. Be on guard, stay awake, preach the gospel to the nations. And together, let's look forward to his glorious coming. Let's pray, hey? Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you that you have not left us never to return again, but that we are to have every expectation that your return is imminent. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that there's nothing more needs to be done before you get back. And Lord, our prayer is come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Claim your throne. Take us to be with you. But Lord, until that day, we ask that you would help us to stay awake, that you would help us to be the fruitful disciples that you've called us to be, loving you with all of our hearts, with every fibre of our being, loving our neighbour as ourself and knowing you as our Lord and our Saviour. Lord, give us a passion to, to preach the gospel to the world. Even though the world hates us and even though the world hates your gospel, Lord, there are some who will receive it with great joy. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the stamina to keep going and that we would know your presence with us even when we're persecuted. In Jesus' name, amen.